evening, good evening from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. This is episode 19. Who would believe it? And, uh, and I'm really excited to be chatting tonight to you about our story of, of diving in shark cages with great whites. Except there was a twist. And the twist is indeed that the shark came into my cage. Um, my lady was not in the cage, but I digress. This is a story for later on. Um, I'm Roberto, your show host tonight of A Life Extraordinary. And uh, indeed, I've lived one myself. And I'm going to be interviewing later on in the series many people who live extraordinary lives as well. And uh, today's podcast is about going on our trip to Africa and going shark cage diving. Um, I've invited my lady Shireen to come chat uh, with us about all that happened because it was intense <laughs> yeah, for her in a different way than me. Um, so I'll let you know a little bit more about that. And then if there's time, I'll take you on a trip uh, a bit through some of the experiences that we had while we were on the African continent. Um, it was a trip of a lifetime. Indeed, I'm going back uh, in, a, in a month only, in a month exactly. So, uh, so lots to share about that. And, uh, and, in, and my lady comes from the African continent. She's from Senegal, West Africa, from Lebanese descent. Um, and it's, it's, we had an extraordinary trip, you know, aside from a shark going in our cage and uh, the Malarone pills and uh, the worst flight of our life. And <laughs> there's, there's a lot that happened on that trip. Um, and then if there's time later on after that, I'll, uh, I'll take you along uh, on a trip that I did with a buddy of mine where we went hunting for an active volcano in Ecuador, in Tunguragua. But uh, let us begin tonight with uh, before our one of our three kids wakes up uh, with chatting a little bit about shark cage diving in Ranzbai, South Africa. Um, so I invite my lady to speak and come on board. Hello. Hello, <laughs> Hello Shireen. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. We, I'm doing good. We haven't figured out how to have both phones with the app in the same room while we're doing the podcast because it creates like some sort of funky interference. So you had to go to a different room, but we're in the same condo. Exactly. And I can hear you. You can <laughs> hear me from, from the room. Oh, from the room without the phone. Without the phone. <laughs> but you always, you always say that I am uh, the softest spoken person, no? We balance each other. So I'm, I'm not soft spoken? You're the loud one. I'm the soft spoken one. Oh. Okay, well, on we uh, each other. It, it's true, it's true. It, um, on our trip to Africa, I thought we would begin by telling people about the shark cage diving experience. Uh, so we got to Cape Town as a hopscotch onto a town called Gransby, and this is where the boats go in with the shark cages. And they take you go out on the water, and for us, this was one of our sponsored trips, and you go out on the water, and they put the shark cage next to the boat while it's anchored, and then you get into the cage with your, your snorkel or your scuba gear. In my case, I had scuba gear on one of them and then snorkel on the other, um, 
And, uh, and then they throw Chum, which is basically the head of a dead fish, uh, ahead of the cage. And they, they, there's a rope tied to it. And at the same time, they're throwing lots of, uh, Chum into the water, which is like this, this chewed up, uh, fish and, and oils, uh, to attract the, the apex predator, the great white shark to the cage. And then they pull it towards them and therefore towards you at the cage. And so the shark lunges right in front of your cage. And this is how that experience happens. But I'll begin with, do you remember the morning? It was a, we had our coffee. We headed out on mm-hmm. the boat. What did you yeah. start to feel? Well, I was very excited. I, I actually was looking forward to a great day. I was motivated. We got up early, I think before sunrise, had some breakfast. We had an amazing group as well. Um, and then we walked down from uh, the place we were staying with the uh, operator. And we walked down to the boat, get on the boat with a wonderful group. Um, and I think we were boating for about, how long did we go for? Half an hour, 45 minutes before yeah. reaching um, the, the spot where we cage dive from. Ideal shark-infested waters. <laughs> That's the idea, right? <laughs> yeah. But you're, you're you're still in a cage, so you, you feel protected. And um, uh, at this point, were you getting green yet? I think I got drink, uh, green from the moment we left. <laughs> uh, I do get seasick very easily, and um, I was not expecting to get seasick that day. Actually, didn't even think about it. So uh, once we got there and the boat stopped moving. Um, by the time I got my wetsuit on, it was, I was getting really hot and, you know, I was getting nervous and I was starting what? to get, who would seasick. get nervous about going into the, wa- wait, wait, but who would get nervous about going into the water with uh, a great white shark? Like nothing to be scared about. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you weren't scared. <laughs> you were excited, oh. but it's, it's all. the No, emotions. that's true. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. <laughs> so. Did you start to be sick right. on our way there? I think I got oh, sick hello. once the boat stopped moving. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, I can hear you now. There was a little bit of interference, so don't go too close. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, in the bathroom now. I moved from the room to the bathroom. I'll turn off the fan. Yeah, the signal keeps cutting out a bit. Oh, okay. Well... Let me know if you if you still hear it cut. Yeah. Is it better? Yeah, it's, it's cutting out. If you could move to somewhere where there's better signal, that'd uh, be great. Okay. Not yet. Let, me, let me switch to this room. How does it sound? Yeah, there we go. I think that's better. Okay. Well, let me know if you. Yeah. If okay. So change. we're so we're getting we're getting green on the boat. Well, you're getting green on the boat, and yeah, it's because so the when boat the is not- yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Because the boat is not moving. So by the time I put my wetsuit on, um, like I was mentioning, I was getting a little nervous and I was thirsty. Uh, I think I was the third group uh, going into the cage. So it was a good hour uh, <laughs> waiting, waiting for my turn. Yes. And I got so, so seasick. And I still made it down. I still made it into the cage, down in the water. Yeah. Um, I saw the shark. I don't remember... Were you were you doing the scuba or were you doing the snorkel? No, I was doing the snorkel. In I the think. cage. Yes, I was doing the I snorkel we had done in the cage. The snorkel. 
you did the scuba diving because uh, you were taking you got, picture. Right. And in that, at that point, we were four in the cage, right? Yes. You, you myself, and two other people. And, people. Uh, but yeah. com compared to uh, another group, I didn't get sick in the cage, though. I waited for <laughs> my turn to end. And then I got back in the boat, uh, uh, took my wetsuit off, and I think I... I did have to L let it all keeps out. cutting in and out. Do you... I hear you very well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. When I hear on your voice on the microphone, it seems to like cut it, cut in and out. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyways, oh. um, and then I, and then afterwards, I went in. Uh, was it was my turn. Uh, I wanted to go again, and you didn't want to go again because I think you were being sick overboard the side of the boat. And while you were being sick overboard, I was on the boat and I see a group that was doing it in the cage. And suddenly there's like some weird <laughs> stuff floating all over the water. And I, I told the guide, he's like, is that the, the, the uh, did the shark leave something? Is that part of the chum? And it was all around the people. And it was actually one of the girls that had puked. Right. I was then in the, the only one. <laughs> no, you were puking on the other side of the boat. She puked there. Luckily, I wasn't in there. And so, so many people were feeling sick simply because the boat is stationary uh, and it starts to rock side to side um, because it's anchored that you feel so much more uh, the movement of the ocean. And so you mm -hmm. said, okay, I'm no good. I remember about going in again. And so I went yeah. in again. And this time I was with uh, just another lady because... Um, Nobody else wanted to go because everybody was being sick. <laughs> so, so I go in the I go in the cage and uh, they're doing the movement. And just as he does the chum, the shark came comes so close to the cage that he isn't able to stop and turn. So his entire nose comes into our cage, and for a moment I'm there. Uh, the lady and I moved side to side a bit, and we looked down at the shark and. I took pictures, so I've got some really cool pictures that, to show of that. If you scroll far back enough on my Instagram, you'll find that, that shot. But um, I'll have to post it soon again uh, for sure. And I start taking uh, pictures, and the shark rolls its eyes back into its head in order, not to, in order to protect it. Because if it was attacking like a seal, um, then it doesn't want to have its eyes scratched out. And I remember I just I wasn't petrified or scared. I was just like really stoked about the moment but what made it great uh was that we were only two people because if we had been four people then indeed somebody's foot would have been flailing in the area where the shark is because i remember that with the movement of the waves particularly for you that that's shorter it would kick your feet out remember your feet would like go out of the cage a little bit yeah yeah totally um but and i so think it, yeah overall it was uh it definitely was coming out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I remember a few times I'm like, hey, put your, put your feet back in. So if we had been four, it might have been a different scenario. And uh, somebody might have uh, more than a, a shark necklace to, to show for it. But uh, that was, yeah, that was our shark cage diving. And I think now that we're on the topic of, uh, of, of the whole continent. Um, Tell me. Uh, how, would, how did you like taking the anti-malaria pills? Malarone pills. Um, I honestly, I'm from Senegal, like you mentioned. I'm. I was born and raised in West Africa, and I've. So Malarone is a 
is prescribed to uh, prevent malaria. And um, I had never taken this pill living there. I, you know, we, 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 we dealt with malaria once we had it and we never really uh, felt that it was a, that we were in danger from it. It was just something. So you already had, you had malaria already. How many times? Several times uh, throughout my my 18 years of living there several times for sure and not just me my brothers um friends um so yeah it's something that we we are used to but um you on the other hand aren't used to that so no and i was like we're going to africa malarone pills with you and that i think that was the worst idea ever yeah because we you start to have very crazy vivid dreams uh, a bit of anxiety kicks in um, sweats, we, night sweats. We, we were having night sweats. Um, when we went on a, in Mozambique and we did a big, a big dive there, we were corkscrewed up uh, from a very big current that kicked us up. Uh, this was an amazing dive in that we saw the largest grouper fish I've ever seen. But the, the current kicked us up and it was taking you way, way too fast. I even let go yeah. of my camera of $10,000 of, of gear so that I could grab your hand and try and pull you down because the water, the current was bringing us both up. Fortunately, yeah. it was the only time that I've ever tied my housing to my uh, to my BCD before. So that was, using your uh, laptop strap. Using my laptop, laptop strap. Yes, absolutely. Very MacGyver. I very, very James Bond. <laughs> and and we got corkscrewed, and it was quite a you know we went from ninety feet up to zero quite quickly. And uh, obviously, you're supposed to do decompression stops and three minutes at 15 feet and things like that. And we didn't do that. So we were quite concerned to be in a very foreign country where uh, there, there is no decompression chamber. So on shore, they're basically within 24 hours of being corkscrewed in, in a similar fashion, uh, scuba diving, you have the possibility that, uh, that you get decompression sickness. And it starts by like tingling fingers, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, escalofrios, which are basically like, like, uh, cold, a little bit of cold sweats. Um, and, and then suddenly you could die. So I started to being on Malarone and having the extra anxiety from this, I started to freak out and be like, oh my God, you know, we could die if we don't get to Africa. We have to decide, I mean, to, to South Africa, because we have to decide if we, if we want to take a low level flight which is an emergency flight to get us to South Africa so we can get in a decompression chamber. Um, it's, you know, a very expensive uh, thing to do. And, uh, and, and you have to do it right away to obviously organize to make that, that happen. So for 24 hours, I was, I was uh, the calm one and you were the one freaking out. Is that what I was meant to say? Or was it vice versa? <laughs> totally. No, I was the calm one. You were the one freaking out. And I remember I, it was your birthday. And... Um, I remember you were laying on the bed and I was like, you're going to be fine. Nothing's happening. I'm like, my fingers are tingling. I might die. (laughs) Well, you wanted to wait the 48 hours um, that... um, It's 24 hours. Was it it 24 24? or 48? I think it's 24. Anyways, we waited that timeline, that time frame until... We're like, okay, we're fine. felt like, okay, I'm fine. Yeah, I've made it through this, this section, so I'm still alive and... That's great. <laughs> um, 
But that was that wow. was pretty incredible. Ten years later, we're still alive, so that's true. That's true. Yeah. I, some sometimes I question how, and most of the time, it's who that uh, is a bit more freaking out, and who's the calm one? Who? Who? What do you mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so I get my moment it, sometimes too. <laughs> we balance each other. Uh, and then we did uh, the African safari in Kruger National Park with mm-hmm. with an outfitter. Uh, what was your favorite animal seeing there? I think it was the cheetah. Yes, that was pretty special. That was on our self-drive, though, wasn't it? It was on our self-drive. It just yes. came out of nowhere and just so stood in the middle of the road. Um, it was um, quite something to see. So in South Africa, you could either do an organized uh, safari, like the one that I'm doing in Tanzania uh, coming up in a month, where basically an outfitter takes you out on on these big trucks uh, that are open to see wildlife. Or you could do it uh, where you rent a car and you drive certain roads through the park uh, on what's called a self-drive and see the animals yourself. And so we were on that section of doing the self-drive when we saw the cheetah. But we also saw with the, with the outfitter the uh, giraffes and rhinos. Yeah. Um, we never saw the lions, though. We did not see the lions. No, we saw the lions. We didn't see the... Um, no, it's the lions we didn't see, I'm pretty sure. Maybe. Yeah. We but saw we the saw cheetah. hyenas, we saw yeah. wild dogs, impalas. Um, yeah. Lots, yeah, lots of those. And, uh, Elephants. Okay, favorite flight in the world, Ethiopian Airlines from Senegal to uh, Ethiopia? It wasn't Ethiopian Airlines. It was an airline that had... No. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it was through Ethiopian Airlines. So we get on in Senegal on this plane, and the airport. You mean the one from Senegal to to Eth- Addis Ababa? Was it Ethiopia? Yeah. Yeah. Where we we no. get to. We it was get supposed to, the pl- to be a South African airline plane, mm. but I'm not sure it was. Oh yeah, well, but it, but that was it. South African Airlines. I think it was the Ethiopian Airways. But maybe maybe I'm uh, shooting down the wrong airline right now. But the point is, we get to the plane, it's unmarked, there's nothing on the seats, you can't see, like, any idea of who owns this airplane. Uh, there's, women are fighting about putting their uh, bags up, up above the compartments and who gets what space. There's uh, a guy sitting on an aisle next to us that's horking massive amounts of bodily human fluids onto the floor in front of us. Uh, it was, it was, uh, and that combined with the extra anxiety of the Malarone pills was the most horrifying flight yeah. I've ever been on, hands Absolutely. down. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I agree. We ran out of soap on that flight too. Oh yeah. You go to the bathroom, there's no soap. There's like, oh, there's 700 people on this plane, but, or 400 people on this plane, but no soap, not a single bar of soap. Re- imagine today with COVID, people would be, um, up, up in arms, but remind me not to... <laughs> Not to fly through Addis Ababa, and I, and I, and from what I remember is that airport doesn't have as much regulation as other airports that you fly into, and for that reason, you can use whatever plane you've got sitting on the tarmac that you might have borrowed from your friend's brother's sister's cousin. Um, so that was yeah, that was terrible. Um, it was definitely but, fly with um, renowned did, airlines. I, I did when you're say flying that flying in Africa. What, one of my most interesting arrivals to an airport was when I first arrived to Senegal. Um, and there's, we're on the tarmac 
and Dakar, and the plane stops in the middle of the tarmac, um, and they ask for you and I to get off the plane, and there's everyone else is sitting down, and a little bus with like comes uh, like a VIP bus comes next to uh, to the plane, and the only two people to get off the plane are us, and we walk down, uh, and the little bus takes us away. Yeah. That was that was unique. That was that was quite a way to land, eh? To and get through the airport. Would we? Would they still be receiving us like that? You think? Uh, we need to go and and see for ourselves, right? right? I don't know. I'm glad your parents are in Montreal right now. <laughs> um, uh, the that we did the scuba diving. If we had, it's too bad that we weren't kite surfers at the time. We were in Mozambique because oh, I think we yeah. we went to one of the most beautiful sandy, windy yeah, islands in the middle of nowhere called the Bazaruto Archipelago. And uh, and it was stunning. You're on these giant sand dunes in the middle of blue hues of ocean. And if we had our yeah. kite gear now, it would be a very... If we were Absolutely. there now, it would be a very different trip. Yeah, it would ju- definitely be um, an activity that we would do every day. Instead of diving, we would be kiting. So... Um, Kiting pretty yeah, much took conditions. over. Kiting yeah. pretty much took over our diving desires. Oh, sorry. I think I hear oh. Catalina. Yeah, oh, I'll yeah. let you go take care uh, of our children. Thanks right. for chatting I with will. me today, love. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry, I couldn't and, stay longer. So, somebody has to go take care of them. So go ahead, and I'll go right. on here. Sure. <laughs> nice chatting. Bye bye now. All righty then. Well, there you go. A little chat with my oh. Hello, hello. I will have to edit that little section. My microphone unplugged, but thank you very much for uh, for coming to chat with me today, my lady. Uh, that was very interesting. We, I think we still have to figure out a little bit about uh, how to have the two microphones in one room and not have interference with each other because I think it's really neat to be able to sit in front of the person that you're, you're interviewing. So we'll, uh, we'll figure that out. This is a learning cur- curve. You know, Colin app is uh, quite a new app and it's already gaining a lot of uh, momentum. And one of the really neat things about it is that in essence, we are each our own radio stations and people can call in and chat and uh, it's quite social. I guess it's uh, social podcasting, truly. Um, so that's, that, that's really neat. But, uh, but I digress, I digress. So that's our stories of a bit uh, of great white sharks in the cage in South Africa, of uh, travels a bit through Mozambique, uh, Dakar, Senegal, and uh, Ethiopia. I will never land at that air- airport again, I must say. <laughs> but on to some other crazy thrill-seeking adventures. Um, I used to, to take some pretty great adventures uh, when time permitted with a buddy of mine, Wang Su. And one of the things that we decided to do was go all the way to Ecuador in search of a fiery... I'll tell you this story, which, uh, which still rings true, true to heart, and indeed, I'll tell you what happened in the end at the end. <laughs> but let's start with this. So... The volcano's innards were rumbling and surrounding communities were being put on alert for evacuation. The town of Baños, only eight kilometers away, was blanketed in ash, and while foreign travelers were becoming scarcer, the locals didn't seem to be fretting. 
accustomed as they were to living in the shadow of a bubbling cauldron. The town was quiet, quietly waiting. Fountains of lava near the crater had been spotted. It was December 6, 2011, and after a week of intermittent ashfall and seismic readings, all the government of Ecuador had finally announced an orange alert for the region. An eruption was possible within the week. Tunguragua could explode any day now, any minute really, and we just happened to be a few hours away. Indeed, we had been trying to climb Cotopaxi before I had been rejected by some lovely and... Uh, terrible altitude sickness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we said, well, what do we do next? And we saw, oh, look, there's a volcano exploding uh, or about to explode not so far away. Let's head over there. Now, we couldn't get there that very day, but within a week, we, Wangsu and I were ATVing, camera gear in tow, up the flanks of a 5,023-meter mountain in Ecuador's eastern Andean Cordillera. Only 140 kilometers south from the country's capital of Quito, Tunguragua, which literally means throat of fire, is located in Sangay National Park and is named after the province in which it lies. By studying sediment and rock around the region of the volcano, scientists have been able to determine that over the past 1,300 years, Tunguragua enters a state of heightened volcanic and seismic activity every 80 to 100 years. We were in another one now. Since 1999, there have been six major eruptions, and it seemed like Wangsu and I were lucky enough to be in Ecuador for the seventh. I can still remember my mom asking incredulously, what do you mean you're going to check out an active volcano? <laughs> Perhaps I still worry her too much. Our first attempt at the mountain began in the early afternoon. A cobblestone road cut up the side of the behemoth from the main highway, wanding along a precipitous edge with gorgeous views of the valley below. We reached a steep, well-worn trail with a sign to Tunguragua's refugio, that's a resting hut, and jumped off our ATVs to continue the rest of the way on foot. We would have to leave them unattended by the side of the road if we were very serious about seeing the eruption. So we left the ATVs, and just then, a diminutive elderly woman appeared at the top of the ultra-steep section where the trail begins. She was struggling to come down with a farmer's sack that must have weighed more than her. We quickly scrambled up the step to give her a hand. The sack must have been 50 pounds. I staggered under the unexpected weight and stepped directly into a pile of horse dung. <laughs> or maybe it was cow dung. It was S-H-I-T. It's irrelevant. But it got all of us laughing. After helping her down, she advised us not to leave the ATVs by the road as undoubtedly they would be stolen. She suggested we drive to a nearby trustworthy farmer who owned a homestead about 200 meters away to ask if we could park our vehicles there while we trekked up the mountain. We gave the woman five bucks US. Ecuador adopted the greenback as its currency in the year 2000, and she thanked us so profusely it was positively heart-wrenching. Amid the thank yous, she warned us of the thieves that lived high up on the volcano, calling them dirty rascals. Not very comforting, as we had seen several fellows walking around with machetes, eyeballing our orange-colored camera cases on our drive here. We heeded her warning and took the bikes to the farmer. He was in a great mood, attentive and jovial to us, and happily agreed to watch them. Actually, he was in a superb mood, considering he had lost 75% of his crop to the ashfall just the week before. He bade us farewell, and under the hot equatorial sun, we began our trek. 
We trudged up a trail on Tungurawa that was clearly ancient. You can see by our photos that in many sections, it was more like walking through a tunnel. The foliage was thick and likely would have looked lush were it not for the grey layer of dust that made the leaves droop solemnly. The ash is lethal to plants, and when I saw I thought instantly of the farmer having lost his crop. Thick clouds constantly enveloped the peak. There was no chance of a clear shot. When the trail crossed a dirt road, Wangsu suddenly burst out laughing. We had just lugged our tripods and cameras for four kilometers on a 60-degree, muddy, mucky, manure-strewn trail, then realized we could have at least biked to that point. Still, we kept going. A few kilometers later, we set up the cameras from a decent vantage point on the trail to take some time-lapse photos of the low-lying clouds. The silence was punctuated by the sound of men coming down the trail. I thought of what the woman had said about the thieves and of the trail closed to tourism sign we had seen. Nobody but the kindly farmer knew we were here. Two gruff men with hands like cleavers suddenly appeared above us. They even had the higher ground. A machete hung loosely over each of their shoulders with what looked like a cowtail rope. Their rough clothes told of heavy toiling in the fields and their rusted blades gleamed in the setting sun. Buenas noches, exclaimed Wang Su. The men looked surprised to see us. Immediately, they tipped their hats politely. I exhaled with relief and returned their smile. We chatted about the volcano and they told us, luckily Wang Su and I speak fluent Spanish, that they worked for a farmer in a field just a few kilometers up. They said that the crater had been covered in cloud for a few days, but that at night on a clear day, you could see it from higher up. Hoy no, demasiadas nubes, said one of the men, which translate to, not tonight, too many clouds. The light was fading fast, and I had this sinking feeling that we weren't going to get our epic volcano shot that day, or night. Somewhat dejected about not getting the shot, we turned on our headlamps and began to make our way back down. The ancient trail felt all the more eerie with nightfall. Before the fireflies began to glow, we reminisced about the day's events. We had quad-biked some epic scenery, met an inspiring elderly woman who imparted us with great advice, trekked up a trail so well-worn that it felt like we were in Alice in Wonderland, and had a couple of beers with the farmer who had lost his crop. Sometimes, what you thought would be the epicenter of your adventure actually isn't. It's everything that happens around it. And there you go, good friends. That was our adventure that we did not find the uh, cauldron of fire that we expected to. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, everything that we found in between was great. And, and part of our reward, <laughs> I have to say, when we went back down that night is that we, we found uh, a place next to our hotel for a massage. And we each got a forehand massage. It was quite unique. Um, and I think it's the only time I've ever had gotten a forehand massage. That was really nice. Um, but it was a, an, an anxious day, wondering whether the people... Uh, what, number one, whether we were going to see the cauldron and if it was safe. Number two, all the warning signs from the government saying, like, you can't come up here right now. It's closed. You might be killed. Unfortunately, very, very sad. But uh, I believe it was about three months later, four months later, that Tungurawa in, did indeed erupt. And uh, the entire side of the mountain that we had been on was just covered in lava. 
So, uh, so that was, that was pretty terrible. I, I'm not sure what the timeline afterwards, I'm going to have to Google that, but, uh, but I do remember thinking and wondering, uh, what might've happened to that nice farmer, uh, and lady. Um, and there we go. So tonight we've recapped shark cage diving. Um, the shark came into my cage. It's a crazy picture that you've got to see. Just scroll down my feed until you find it <laughs> on Instagram. Uh, chatted with my lady about uh, the misadventure sides of, of going to Africa and the Malarone pills. And, you know, she's accustomed to living in Africa. She had been born and raised in Senegal. And, um, and for me, as a Westerner uh, going there, it was a bit more like, well, I have to make sure all my vaccines are in order and I have to start taking Malarone and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and frankly put, you learn that malarone is not something that you want to play with. In, I think they used to say that the, a lot of U.S. soldiers that used to take it used to actually uh, have a lot of psychological issues after. So I recommend avoiding it because it was very strange. And we did both have very vivid nightmares from that. So we touched on a bit of travels around Africa. And, uh, and there's lots, lots more to talk about. But for tonight... Uh, the night is late, and um, and I think it's time for me to go see how my little three are doing. Thank you very much for 